Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We're jumping forward just a little bit in the book, and so don't get discombobulated when you get here next week and find we've jumped back to chapter 9. I'm moving forward to a text, a passage of Scripture this morning that I think is just better suited for the particular day that we're dealing with today. Does that make sense? Is that okay with y'all today? It's all God's Word anyway. Somebody say amen. One of the challenges that we face in life is the challenge of sometimes knowing what to do when competing, uh, when uh, faced with competing options. Y'all ever been in a position like that? Maybe you had one, two, three different competing options and you weren't sure what to do. You had to make a decision. Surely you've heard the story about the young Zod who came to two signs at the fork in the road. He looked one way and the other way too, and the Zod had to make up his mind what to do. Well, the Zod scratched his head and his chin and his pants, and he said to himself, I'll be taking a chance. If I go to place one, it might be too hot. And how will I know if I like it or not? On the other hand, though, I'd feel such a fool if I go to place two and find it's too cool. In that case, I might catch a chill and turn blue. So place one, it's the best, and not place two. On the other hand, though, if place one is too high, I I might get a terrible earache and die. On the other hand, though, if place two is too low, I might get a terrible pain in my toe. So place one, it's the best. He started to go, but he stopped and he said, on the other hand, though, On the other hand, other hand, other hand, though, and for 36 and one-half hours, that Zod made stops and made starts at that fork in the road, saying, don't take a chance, you might not be right. And then he got an idea that was wonderfully bright. Play safe, cried the Zod. I'll play safe. I'm no dunce. I'll simply start off to both places at once. And that's how the Zode, who would not take a chance, got to no place at all with a split up his pants. (laughs) Oh, thank you very much. It's one one of my most favorite theologians of all time, Dr. Seuss, that's right. If you ever need a little wisdom about life, just read a little Dr. Seuss. How many of you have felt like that Zode in the road? at that proverbial fork, times of confusion. You know you gotta move forward. You're just not sure which direction to move in. And I've had that experience before, know that you probably have too. The danger sometimes is that when in doubt, most people choose what they consider to be the easiest path. Sometimes we call that the path of least resistance and we end up playing it safe. And you know why we end up playing it safe? Because it's just safer to stay close to first base than it is to try to steal second. But here in Ecclesiastes 11, Solomon reminds us of this central truth that God designs life to be a great adventure, full of risk, full of excitement, full of opportunity. But life is designed by God for people to live boldly, always in the will of God, but without fear. God has not given us a spirit of of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And this is why you have to learn as a child of God to live very intentionally when it comes to life. 
And speaking of, of that, let's briefly walk through this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 this morning. And as we do, I'm going to take it in little sections this morning uh, and, 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 and do it in such a way that we kind of um, are faced with three very significant life principles uh, that I think Solomon would remind all of us here, even living in the 21st century. And the first of these life principles is what I call the principle of calculated risk. The principle of calculated risk. Look how he begins here in verse number one. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Now let's just stop there for a moment because this is one of the more familiar statements in the book of Ecclesiastes, very recognizable. But it's not always understood. What, what, what's Solomon talking about when he's talking about casting your bread on the water? When I was a little boy, my mother used to take me up to the Ravenwood Club just outside of Nashville. They had a little lake there on the, on the property, and she would take a, a sack of old or moldy bread, and we would feed the ducks. Anybody ever done that before? And we would take old bread, and we would toss it out there. We now live in the year 2021, and now I'm told that that's not really a good thing for the ducks to do. And so I repent publicly this morning, but we fed bread to the ducks, and they seemed to always enjoy it. We tossed these little bite-sized bits. I did it with my kids out on Empire uh, Lake down by the Empire Dam when we lived in Branson, Missouri area. But that's not what Solomon is talking about here. The idea really has more to do, cast your bread on the water, has more to do with sea trade than anything else, shipping. In fact, the word cast could also be translated send. Send your bread upon the waters. The word bread is a word basically that refers not so much to the delicacies that you and I enjoy when we walk into a bakery and we smell that most wonderful smell on planet Earth which is fresh bread baking. That's not what it is referring to here. The idea here is more of grain. So we read in our Bibles most familiarly, cast your bread upon the water. But would it make any sense if I were to translate it this way, send your grain upon the waters? That's totally different in terms of our understanding. The idea is putting your grain on a ship and sending it off to market which way back when, 3,000 years ago, was kind of a risky thing to do. There were no assurances if you did that. And Solomon's point here is very simple. The farmer has a choice to make. He can keep all the grain there on his little family farm, and he can make lots of bread with the grain that he himself has produced. And he'll be eating bread all year long till the cows come home. But he won't be making very much money, and he won't have the opportunity to buy very much else if he does that. The wiser thing to do is to send it to market. Put it on a ship. Send that grain out on the open seas to distant countries. And hopefully if the market's good, he'll reap a pretty good financial windfall from that. But there were no guarantees. That's the point. Once you put it on that ship and you wave sayonara as the ship weighs anchor and then leaves out from the harbor, who knows what might happen. It might get caught in a big storm, might sink in a cyclone. Uh, pirates could hijack the ship. The person controlling the cargo might not give you all of your just income. He might skim some off the top and you'll have no way of knowing it. But the only way to keep from being a poor country farmer 
is who eats bread all the time and nothing else is to be intentional and take a risk. Several years ago, one of the greatest trips that Judy and I ever took, took us through Paris, France, and we loitered for a few days, and we hired a, uh, we hired a guide who drove us out to Normandy Beach. And of course, that was the site of the D-Day landing. We spent an entire day there. We left well before the sun came up from Paris, and we got out to Normandy, and, at Normandy, and we went to Pointe de Hoc, and we went to the American Cemetery, which was like going to church. And then we went down on the beach, and we just had the most wonderful day there, and one of the most historic places in the world. I'd love to go back and, and spend more time. The site of the D-Day landing, June 6, 1944. We were actually there on Veterans Day, which made it extra special. And if you all have ever seen the first 20 minutes of the movie Saving Private Ryan, anybody watch Saving Private? It's a hard movie to watch in places. But you know that in the first 20 minutes, uh, the place that you didn't want to be if you were one of those soldiers was on the beach. Now, when you're trying to duck machine gun fire, the easiest thing to do is to cower down and stay on the beach. But that's not a wise decision. You want to do whatever it takes to get off of that beach. And those who were too afraid to move, those who made a decision that it was safer to stay stationary, most of them ended up dying right where they stayed. It was risky. But those who made the risk of trying to serpentine their way through all of that craziness, get off the beach, even running through a cavalcade of machine gun fire, they were the ones who were most likely to survive. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? Solomon's advice here is keep moving forward with your life. God's people ought not be staying stationary with life. You've got to be intentional about life. You've got to be wise about life. Always in the will of God, which means that you won't always know with absolute certainty what the best move to make is, but the Spirit of God will give you wisdom and you have to learn to be intentional because you have no way of knowing what's going to happen. I mean, a tornado never sends you an announcement in advance. Neither does an earthquake. You never know what's coming around a corner. And if you use that as an excuse, you're going to live a very boring, dissatisfied life. And so the point here is don't be afraid. Cast your bread upon the water. Send your grain out upon the water because it's worth the risk. So take it. If you're scared all the time, you'll never have much of a life. In fact, as the poet theologian said, you'll get nowhere at all with a split up your pants. Somebody say amen. So this is the principle of calculated risk. Everybody with me so far? Amen. All right. Secondly, the principle of diversification. Diversification. This is taking a risk wisely. Not flippantly, not casually. Not devil may care. No, you play by God's rules. Take a risk. God's not going to fill you in on every detail about life. But you seek the Lord while he may be found, by, the Bible says, and learn to be wise. And this is the principle of diversification. You see it implied in the first verse. Cast your bread upon the what? Upon the wat waters, right? Plural. Upon the waters. And then notice what he says in verse 2. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. For you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. 
If Solomon were speaking to us in real time, he might say, okay, take that $10,000 and put it into seven or eight different stocks, not just one. Because that would be foolish. Something happens to that one, you're in a world of hurt, right? That's not wise investing. And we, you know, those of you that work with a financial advisor probably been told that from time to time, this incredibly important principle of diversification. Solomon is telling that to the country farmer here. Don't put all that stuff just on one ship. Cast it upon the waters. Give it to seven or eight. Spread it out. Because that way, if, you, if, if, you, if there's one corrupt captain and he's got all of your merchandise, you're in, you're in big trouble. They're not all dishonest. And so learn to diversify. Put it on several ships headed to more than one destination. So take the risk, but make it a calculated risk, a wise risk. Don't put all your eggs in one what? Basket, that's right. And this is true not only with how you invest your money, how you diversify your portfolio so that when one part of the market struggles, you've got investments over here in another part that's stronger. Put a little bit over here in the United States stock market, put some in an international market fund, have some in bonds, have some in money market instruments. Maybe, as the TV commercials say, buy a little gold, right? Or silver, whatever. Diversify. Because it's probably not a wise thing to concentrate everything together in one place. That's true. For example, it's probably not a wise thing for two primary income workers, uh, income earners in a family work for the same company. That one company goes belly up. Now, I know family businesses are a thing and all of that. There are exceptions to every rule. But you get the picture here. You don't want to lose the company to go under and everybody's out of work. So this is the principle of diversification. We hear it all the time in the world in which we live, and it's actually a very biblical concept. Solomon says, live intentionally, uh, be willing to risk, because where there is no risk, there is no real reward. Don't be reckless in how you do it, though. Be willing to risk, but always in the will of God. Never recklessly. Be wise and learn how to diversify it. Learn how to spread the risk so that you're living with biblical wisdom. The principle of calculated risk, the principle of diversification. And then we see in this passage of Scripture the principle of intentionality. Intentionality. Most people live their lives very flippantly, very haphazardly. They just kind of shift on the fly. There's no real thinking ahead. There's no real sense of planning. One of the things about Solomon, if you read him closely enough, is that you find that Solomon was a planner. I mean, just read the book of Proverbs. There's all kinds of incredible wisdom in Proverbs about the importance of learning to save money and learning to think ahead and learning how to be wise in terms of how you work and how you spend and how you save and how you conduct your life, of thinking about the future, of building up an inheritance for your children. Planning, 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 planning. That's a very biblical concept. And that requires an intentionality on your part and mine as well. This is what Solomon is talking about beginning here in verse number three. Notice it together with me. Making the most of the opportunities that God brings upon, across your path. Verse three, if the clouds are full of rain, they emptied themselves on the earth. 
And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In other words, have you found that God sometimes works in mysterious ways, right? You're not going to know everything about God's plan or how God works. Verse 6, in the morning sow your seed. And at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Now, what's the point of what he's saying right there? The point very simply is there's just some things in life that you're not going to be able to control. And I know a lot of control freaks at Hillcrest. And one of the most liberating things is there's just some things I can't control. And so can I just say this morning, this would be a good day for some people within the sound of my voice to publicly resign their position as general manager of the universe. That's God's responsibility. He's got everything under control. But we can't always understand all of that. We don't know why God moves in certain ways, why God withholds his hand in certain ways for certain reasons. Storm clouds pour their rain on the earth. Solomon says trees fall in the forest and they begin to decompose right where they land. You can't predict any of that that's going to happen. You can't control them and you can't stop them, which is why the Bible teaches you ought not be anxious about them. I mean, there's a lot in this world that creates anxiety, particularly right now, right? But as long as you've paid attention to the details and as long as far as it depends on you, you've done everything that you've known to do. And I've said that multiple times to people this week. Based on what you've told me, you've done everything you know to do. Now go get a milkshake and enjoy it. (laughs) On your way home, quit worrying about it. You can't do anything else about any of this stuff. And if you don't learn to do that, if you don't learn to just let God be God, You take care of what God's told you to take care of, and you learn to let God be God. If you don't learn to do that, you're going to live a very anxiety-ridden life, which is not God's will. And so you learn not to fret about certain stuff that you cannot control and will never be able to control. When Solomon says here in verse 4, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. I mean, that's a farmer that's saying constantly, on the other hand, though, on the other hand, other hand, other hand, though, and for 36 and one half hours, he doesn't know whether to get on the tractor or go back to bed. And what does God say? Get on the tractor. Quit playing around. I mean, if your app says there's a 99% chance of rain, then maybe pick up a newspaper and read for a while, but you ought not do that for 12 straight days. You may have to go out there and start sowing even if it's a little windy. Otherwise, you never will and you'll never have a reward, the rewards you could have had. Most of us are very attuned to waiting for what we consider to be the most opportune moment, right? We, we like to time the market. Well, I don't want to, I know they told me it was a good time to sell, but I don't want to do that now. And you try to time the market. 
And that's usually a major mistake. We wait for when there's no wind blowing to sow the seed. We, we wait for a completely cloudless sky to take the thresher out and begin the process of, of harvesting the grain. But you'll never get anything done if all you do is wait around for perfect conditions all the time. And you know why? Y'all still with me? Say amen. You'll never have a perfect set of circumstances, ever. You'll be waiting around forever. Life will never give you perfect circumstances. And what happens is so many people are stymied by the paralysis of analysis. They are mesmerized into inactivity. So busy studying about what to do and when to do it, they never get around to doing anything with their life. I know a lot of believers who do that. I'm just saying, man, if God doesn't write it in the clouds, if he doesn't spell it out, well, I'm going to make pancakes this morning, and if my girlfriend's image ends up on the pancake, I'll know she's the right one. But until then, until I see the Madonna of the Hungry Jack Biscuit, <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to move in the least. God is not under any obligation to fill you in on all the details about anything that's going on in your life. He's not a God of insider trading. In fact, this is part of what we mean with living a life of faith. Have y'all ever stopped and thought that in a life of faith, you will never have 100% certainty when you're standing at a fork in the road? I said never. If that were the case, you wouldn't need any faith. You'd be sitting at the conference table with the Lord, right? No, you've got to trust God. You're not going to ever have 100% of the details. And so, I mean, unless it's something that's specifically addressed in God's Word, then you can have 100%. There are some things that I can tell you with 100% certainty are not in the will of God. And you know why I can tell you that? Because I can read about that stuff right here. But then there are other things that I can't find in here. Things that... Maybe you could even argue we're equally good decisions. Well, which one of them is God? I don't know. Sometimes I don't know that for my own life. How am I supposed to answer that for your life? You say, well, I, I, I don't know which of these jobs to take. Well, which one do you want to do? Does either of those jobs violate a principle from the Word of God? Would they require you in some way to compromise your Christian conscience before God? No, both of them would be great. Well, just pick one that you'd like to do and do it and trust God with the results. How hard is that? That may be the most liberating thing I say to some people. Just do it. Just do it. Because sometimes not every decision is going to come with thunder and lightning from heaven. We have this image of God, which I've come to believe is a mistaken image of God, that at that fork in the road that we so often find ourselves, there's a door number one and a door number two. How many of you remember the old game show, Let's Make a Deal? You know, door number one and door number two. And here's the thing. God is speaking into your ear. I'm behind one of those doors with a puffy cloud and a harp, and the other one the devil is behind, and he's going to strike you dead. So you better choose wisely. Choose wisely. 
right? I think that's a false view of God. I mean, unless you've been given clear insight that what's behind door number two is something that's going to clearly violate some tenet of Scripture that God says is no good for your life, then just look to the game show and say, you open the door because either of them are going to be fine and I'm going to trust God to bless whichever road I take. Does that make sense? So many people are <clears throat> stymied, however, by the paralysis of analysis. Augustine said one time, one of the great early church fathers, and it was echoed later during the Reformation by Martin Luther, one of the most liberating statements I've ever read. Augustine said, love God and do whatever you want. I love that. You say, well, that's libertinism. No, it's not, because if you love God, you're going to be constrained by what's in this book right here. It's the person who doesn't love God that goes out and starts making self-centered choices with their life. I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I'm going to do it. No, that's not how a believer operates. If you love God and you seek the Lord while he may be found and you abide in a conscious relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and walk every day by the Spirit of God and feed deeply on the Word of God, if you love God and have this desire to please God with your life, you're going to be constrained by all of that. And when it comes to making a critical decision between one, two, three, four choices, where there are no obvious spiritual or biblical red lights, I think you could do any or all of those and then trust God to bless your life with it. Does that make sense? So don't get so stymied. What if I make the wrong choice? Well, there may not be a wrong choice. When I was a student at Southwestern Seminary, I had the opportunity to walk right into the PhD program there right after I graduated. My grades were really good, and I had the opportunity to just continue my education. Whitney had been born. My gift was preaching, though, and I also had opportunities to go right into the pulpit and I was stymied. I didn't know which of those I really needed to do. And I prayed about it. And I mean, I went and talked to my pastor one day. He was one of my most important mentors. I was serving on staff of a, a large church at the time. And I went and I visited with him. And he kind of knew what was going on anyway. And he looked at me and he said, which do you want to do? And I said, well, that's part of the problem. I kind of want to do both. And he said, well, I'm not sure there's a wrong answer here. I think God could bless you in both of these avenues. And God will use you as long as you stay true and committed to him. And then he looked at me and he told me something I really didn't want to hear. Because I wanted him to give me the answer. And I mean, a lot of people come to me and that's what they want. Just tell me what to do. I can't always do that. And he looked at me and said, do what you want to do. And he turned and walked out of the room. And I said, well, wait a minute. He said, Jim, the needle is probably not going to go like this in either direction. It might go like that in either direction. But he said, you're close enough with the Lord. You kind of have an idea what the best decision is. And I chose to go into the preaching ministry. And when I think about what, I, what I've been... Would the Lord have blessed me if I went into classroom ministry? Absolutely. I believe that with all my heart. 
But when I think of what I would miss, the blessings that I would have missed over the years, I could write a book in three volumes just to my own personal experience. One of these days I may do it just for my kids. My mother would buy a copy. (laughs) I could fill up two or three volumes with what the Lord has done in my life. Solomon says here in verse number six, in the morning sow your seed and at evening withhold not your hand for you do not know which will prosper, this or that or whether both alike will be good, right? Amen. You don't know if this one will prosper or that one or both of them. Stay tight with God, trust God, desire to please God, make a decision, trust God to bless it. Go for it. Just remember, stay within the boundaries of the word of God. You'll be just fine. Look beginning in verse number eight. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Man, that's a great statement right there. In other words, do what you feel led to do. Just remember to seek the Lord as you're doing it because your fundamental desire is to please him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So please God, with your life, and then do as you feel led. Do as you like. And did you notice Solomon says, do it while you're what? While you're young. That's right. Translation, don't become an old person who in your aging years talks about what you wish you had done with your life. George Bernard Shaw, the Irish playwright, said it was a pity that youth is wasted on the young. He's right. Because most young people think they're going to live forever. They don't have to think too seriously about decisions that they make in life. Many of them fritter away time. And man, when you get to be about my age, you you begin to realize, okay, the clock's ticking. If I'm going to get that convertible... Well, that's another story, but I think God would be okay with it. I didn't hear any amens. I'll wait a while. Now, all of us who've got a little mileage on our odometer can look back, and I would imagine that most of us have a little degree of regret that we weren't more adventuresome with our life, that we didn't excuse things away that we wish we had said yes to long, long time ago. But here's the good news. Everybody with me? The, the good news is it's never too late to start being intentional with your life. Never too late. Whether you're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, even 80, it's never too late to begin to live with intentionality. You can't relive the past and that's a wasted effort. Don't even go there. But you can control the decisions that you make today and it's, it, it doesn't matter how old you are. God's given us one life. But but it's better if you learn these principles while you're young. Because you don't want to spend your whole life too close to first base. Or you'll never know the thrill of what it feels like to steal second. So it's never too late. 
to realize that this life that God has given us, this one and only life, this side of heaven, is a great adventure. Meant to be lived with wisdom and with risk and with intentionality. So what's the plea today? Quit making excuses. No more excuses. Seize those opportunities while the door is open. Just make sure that you do it within the constraints of Scripture so that you can always say, as best as I could, I lived my life within what I knew to be the will of God. Now, one of those doors that's wide open to some people today is the opportunity to turn from the self-centeredness of their life and to turn to Jesus and be saved. Now, I'll admit, man, that can be a risky decision or it can feel risky for sure. The real risk, however, when it comes to Jesus Christ is not the risk of embracing Jesus as Savior and Lord, but the risk of not doing it. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him should not. See, there's the risk. Should not perish, but have eternal life. And so the door's wide open to some people today to turn from their sin, the very sin that would cause them to perish and to spend an eternity separated from God. And today God is throwing the door wide open and saying to some people, you have an opportunity to receive the greatest kind of life imaginable, abundant life that can only be found in a right relationship with Jesus Christ where he moves into your life, cleanses you from all sin and gives you status with God, acceptance now and for the rest of eternity. And then once you've done that, <clears throat> another door that's wide open to some people is the door of baptism. Today's baptism celebration here at Hillcrest, and we never want to emphasize baptism without reminding people that you first need to be saved. You first need to trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sins because we believe that baptism is not sacramental, it's symbolic. And by that I mean that baptism doesn't save you. Salvation is by faith in the work of Christ alone on the cross plus absolutely nothing else. What baptism is is a symbol. It symbolizes what's happened to you because you've trusted Christ alone to save you. Baptism is this visual picture for everyone to see with their eyes that you've been changed through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The water represents cleansing that the Spirit of God has brought into your life. The water doesn't cleanse you from sin. It's just a picture of the cleansing from sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse you from all sin. Christ has washed away your sins through the shedding of his blood through the cross. Baptism in water pictures the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. We take a person under the water and it's a picture of the burial of Christ and the death of Christ and that believer's identification with the death and burial of Jesus Christ. You're testifying when you go under the water, Jesus died for my sins and I believe that with my whole life. And then when we bring a person up from the water, it's a picture of the resurrection of Jesus. Christ is no longer dead. He is risen from the dead. 
And I'm identifying with that resurrection life because now that resurrection life has become mine. Christ now lives in me and with him is the power of the resurrection, life without end, life that never dies. And that's what people see when you're baptized. Your identification with the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the water is dripping off of you symbolizing that Jesus Christ alone has cleansed me from all sin and I'm not ashamed in any way, shape, or form to be identified publicly with him. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me in this life, I'll be ashamed of you in the next. Jesus calls, as Billy Graham used to so famously say, every uh, disciple Jesus calls, he calls publicly. Publicly. They all identified with Jesus. Some of them even unto death. The Bible says, repent and be baptized every one of you under the forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if you've trusted Jesus to save you, if you've turned from your sins, are ready to do that this morning and receive in exchange the gift of eternal life which Christ can only provide, then it's time to begin a great adventure called Abundant Life. Time to get off the fence for some people today. No more excuses. Not going to wait anymore for perfect conditions. I'm going to do today what God has clearly revealed in his word is the right thing to do. There may be a lot of decisions that you make in life that carry a lot of mystery. This is not one of them. This is God's clearly revealed will And to turn the other direction is to say no to the Christ who died for you. This is God's word and all God's people said.